right. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for leading us in a time of worship. And uh, I just want to extend a Merry Christmas to all of you who are here this morning. It's good to see you all and have the opportunity to rejoice with you in what our Lord has done. I know this is just a wonderful time of year where we are able to focus our attention on uh, the, the life, the birth, the death, the resurrection, and the glorious future coming of our Lord. And so it's a wonderful time to be able to celebrate uh, some of those things together. I also want to say thank you again for last week and your very gracious gift in that Bible that you provided my family. Uh, we have a perfect place for that, really right kind of in our front hall. And so for those of you who have the opportunity to come to our place in the future, uh, hopefully you'll get a chance to see that. Uh, but we were very grateful for it. I took that home and looked through the whole thing. It, it really is kind of a as far as rare Bibles go, a remarkable, we'll call it a specimen, I suppose you could say. Uh, there are some really neat things in that. I thought about bringing it this morning to preach from, but uh, <laughs> uh, I quickly, after picking it up again, dissuaded myself that that was not going to be a good idea. Uh, but just did want to say thank you for that. I did some research on it. For those of you who don't know much about it, it was a, a Bible that was produced back in 1885, so it's well over 100 years old and uh, was kind of a unique version in that it has uh, concordance, commentary, history of textual transmission, along with over a thousand different illustrations all built in. There's a place for family photos. There's uh, things that were kind of unique to that time period, like a temperance pledge that you could write your name in there. I mean, it was kind of this all-encompassing Bible encyclopedia with multiple versions lined up. It, it's really something special. So thank you for that. Uh, very meaningful, special gift, although um, I'm not sure what to make of Brad um, calling me no longer a spring chicken. So... <laughs> Anyway, I'll, I'll figure out how to respond to that maybe after the new year has uh, come and gone. So anyway, open up your Bibles this morning to Psalm 110. I know we don't have a whole lot of time together here this morning, but I want to dig into something with you together. Uh, I, I want us to be thinking about this. When you think about Christmas, what are you supposed to be thinking about? Right? When you think about Christmas, what is it that should be in your mind as you're looking to celebrate this particular season? And the need for this was really driven home to me yesterday. We're trying to get close to a family that I don't believe that they know the Lord. Uh, but they brought over yesterday some Christmas gifts for our girls, and they've got a young daughter themselves, and so she brought over some gifts for our daughters, and that was, that was very kind of, of them to have done, and very thoughtful, really. But the, the, the gift that they brought was a, a book uh, that one of, one of the books was given to my daughter, Lizzie, and it was a book that was talking about what's really the meaning of Christmas. And as I opened up that book and I, I read it to my daughter, uh, the, the meaning of Christmas, it was a book about this little girl and her, her pet bunny, and they you know, go through exploring together the meaning of Christmas. There's some deep theological truths going on there. But the end of the result was that the meaning of Christmas, in the eyes of the author of this young children's book, was essentially to be kind and to have a spirit of giving to one another. As I read that book, I thought, wow. This has really missed the point of what Christmas is actually all about because the meaning of Christmas is supposed to be so much more than just be kind and give gifts to one another. It's so much more than just be thoughtful. And from there, I ran out of the house and had to go to Target, and I was amazed by what I found at Target. I thought, either I am in the apocalypse right now, 
or the people who go to Target have completely missed the point of Christmas, right? I mean, the shelves were empty and barren, and people were just kind of mad grabbing things and dumping everything related to Frozen 2 into their cart. I mean, mountains of stuffed stuff, you know? I mean, there's elk, and there's deer, and there's I don't even know what, but man, Frozen 2 was big time at Target, and people were just going after it. And as I'm walking through Target and I'm looking at the guy who's holding the pair of Grinch pajamas, evaluating them very critically, I'm thinking, wow, our society, man, they have a great time celebrating Christmas. But as a whole, they do not understand the point of what it is we're celebrating. And so I want us to be thinking through here together this morning as believers, what is it specifically that we are celebrating when we come to Christmas? Because our conceptions of what Christmas is and was should be so much deeper than frozen to Grinch pajamas and just be nice. And they are, I think. Right? We, we think about a baby in a manger. We think about the wise men, the shepherds, all circled around a glowing stable. And we might even think about the meaning of those things as they, as they went through the life of our Lord all the way to the cross. And, and we look back at that single event of Christ having come and we celebrate and we stop. And that's wrong. Because you see, that event that took place in that stable, that was actually just a beginning. That was not the end. And I think in order for us to truly celebrate and for us to rightly center our hearts and minds on the meaning of Christmas, we have to go so much further than just that manger and that stable. Because the advent of our Lord, it was just the very beginning. And and the end, the end is actually yet to come. And it's looking forward to that end that we are actually celebrating when we sit down around our Christmas trees and, and celebrate the Christmas story. So we've got to think about what is the future of Christmas going to be so that we can rightly celebrate the meaning of Christmas today. Now, I know in here, we've been talking a lot about King David. We've been going through a series, looking at the low points of his life. And I want to push pause on that series today and pick it up after the new year. But I do want us to go back and look at King David because I think in order for us to get a grip on Christmas future, we really do have to go all the way into the past, back to the person of David to see how did, how did David think about Christmas? When David thought about Christmas future, how did he think about it? And I think in the process of looking at how David looked at the future of Christmas, we'll find some good lessons for ourselves on how we are to look at the future of Christmas as well. I don't want you to turn there because I don't want to get too confused here this morning, but I do have to refer to it. Keep your Bibles open to Psalm 110, but all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there is a, an epic monumental promise that is given to King David. At that point in his life, he had become king, and the prophet Nathan comes in. And Nathan says to King David, I am going to establish your descendants after you upon this throne, and they will be there upon that throne forever. There would be a king who would reign on David's throne for all of time, and he would be a son not just to David as David's descendant, but he would be a son to God the Father. Now, there for David, immediately, there was kind of a near-term fulfillment of that prophecy in his own son, Solomon. But that son foreshadowed the great and eternal king who would ultimately be the final culmination of David's line. And here, in 2 Samuel 7, we find a man, a shepherd, 
who's gone through some hard times, as we've seen, who is elevated to the post of king. And now that king in the 11th century BC is being told that his dynasty will last forever. And it will culminate in the son of God himself sitting upon the throne of God's kingdom. I'm here to tell you this morning that when David thought about this coming king, he did not think of a baby in a manger. When he thought about what Christmas would be and what it would mean, he thought about a powerful king seated upon this throne, having fulfilled all the promises of God to Adam to crush the head of the serpent and sin. He thought about all the promises of God to Abraham to bring about the universal blessing upon all mankind through this very descendant. David would have thought about the promises of God to Moses to to raise up a great leader who would reveal God perfectly in Deuteronomy 18 to all of his people. And now David is told that this one, that Messiah, the one who is going to reign for all time, was going to come through his very line. It would sit upon his very throne. And David himself would end up worshiping his own descendant. Now, if you were in David's shoes, what would you be thinking? You'd be thinking first, wow. And then second, why me? And what does all of this mean? And how is all of this going to work? And and we know that David thought through these things. We know that he had to process all these things that were revealed to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7 because David went on to pen a number of psalms that contain his reflections upon this promise that God had given to him. And, And one of those clearest reflections is given to us in Psalm 110. It's a divine explanation of the impact of the promise that was made in 2 Samuel 7. It's it's David's explanation of the promise that was made to him. And I'm here to tell you this morning that while we may sit at a different place on the divine redemptive timeline, our perspective on the events that are recorded for us in Psalm 110 are actually very similar to David's. Because we look forward to almost all of the events in Psalm 110, just as David looked forward to them as well. So Psalm 110 really is the the capturing of David's perspective on what it would mean for the Messiah to come. And he looked forward to all of these things happening, just as we do as well. So Psalm 110 really is a very clear explanation of what Christmas future is going to look like. When you think of Christmas, what are you supposed to be thinking about? And I think Psalm 110 gives us the answer for that because it really does give us four different reasons why we can be celebrating at Christmas time. The first reason that David gives to us in Psalm 110.1 is very simple. The reason that you celebrate at Christmas time is because Christ is Savior. Look at Psalm 110.1. He says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's amazing here where David is recording a conversation between the father and the son. And look at how he refers to this son here in verse 1. He calls him my Lord. David is saying about his own descendant that my descendant will be my Lord. And he's saying that Yahweh says to his son Adonai, look at what he says. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Why does he say that? It's not David who is invited to sit at the Father's right hand. 
It's David's own exalted offspring. And why is this Messiah qualified to sit there? Well, Hebrews 1.3 gives us the answer. We're told that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, the author of Hebrew tells us that the reason that Jesus is able to sit there at the right hand of the Father is, number one, because he's God, and number two, because he has completed the work of making purification for your sin and for mine. And when David looked to the future king who would come down through his line, he looked to that king to be the Savior, the one who would make purification and therefore have the right to sit down at the right hand of the Father. And that's exactly what is communicated in verse 1, where God says to his son, look, your work is acceptable. You are my son. You are God. Sit down now at my right hand, having fulfilled the work you were given to do. And so when David looked to that future king, he looked to that future king as his savior. And so do we. The one who did come, just as was promised, he he did sacrifice himself to atone for sin and to make purification for us. And he does now sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven, just as David said he would. This is the reason why we celebrate at Christmas time. Because our Lord, when he came, that Advent, he came as our Savior. The second reason that David gives us to be celebrating at Christmas time is that Christ is not only our Savior, Christ is also our King. When David looked down through the corridors of time, when, as God revealed the truth to him, he saw that Christ would not just be a Savior, he would also be a King. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. And your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. And in holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. What's he picturing here? He's picturing the day when Christ assumes his seat upon the throne of David there in Jerusalem. The day when he will return and assume his rightful place as the king of all of his people. And David, as he looks down towards that day, he he sees a day. When this Messiah would come and sit upon the throne, and in that day he would be the unquestioned sovereign ruler. A ruler who had a divine source as Yahweh sends him forth from Zion. A ruler with divine authority as he picks up his mighty scepter. A ruler with a divine mandate where the Father says to the Son, rule now in the midst of your enemies. And a ruler, a king, who would have a divine people devoted to himself. We're told, your people will offer themselves in holy garments from the womb of the morning. That's there in verse 3. And our question is, well, who is he talking about? He's talking about us. He's talking about David. You see, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And the day will come when we will stand purified in holy garments in his kingdom, offering ourselves to his service, having been fully restored to the dawn of time where there was no sin or suffering. Christ is our King. Our Savior is our King. And at Christmas time, we celebrate the coming of this King. And we look forward to the day when we stand before His throne. And what do those before His throne say? 
Well, Revelation 5 records it. We can turn over there just very briefly because I think it's important for you to see what the worship at the throne of the king actually looks like. Revelation chapter 5, it's very, very interesting. The Apostle John has given a vision of what this throne room looks like, what it sounds like. Revelation 5, 5, John is weeping because of the grandeur of what he is seeing, and one of the elders around the throne of God comes up to him and says, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, and look at this, the root of David, he has overcome. Stop crying. And then you continue down through chapter 5 and look at what these individuals in heaven, the multitude, are saying about the king as he stands up to sit upon his throne. It says, they sang a new song in verse 9 saying, Worthy are you to take the book to break its seals. Why? For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue, people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And you continue going and the angels say the same thing in verse 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then look at verse 13, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things. I mean, he's saying everything that can possibly make noise. I hear them saying to him who sits, look at this, on the throne and to his lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshipped. You see, that's what happens when Christ comes to his rightful throne. And David in Psalm 110, as he looks down, he says, The reason that we celebrate is not just because Christ is our Savior. It's also because Christ is our King. And he is worthy of our celebration and our worship. And in the end, when he does take his seat upon that throne, everyone will be saying, worthy are you, worthy are you, worthy are you. That's David. And someday we'll stand there and that will be us. And he is way, way worthy. That's why we celebrate at Christmas time. Because our Messiah is our Savior. He is our King. You go on in Psalm 110, and this is not an exhaustive treatment of Psalm 110. This is one of the most quoted psalms in the entire New Testament. So we cannot get down into all the nooks and crannies of this text. I wish we could. But I just want us to see these reasons for why we celebrate the coming of our Messiah as we look to the future, right? It's because Christ, in verse 4, the third reason, Christ is also our priest. He's our Savior. He's our King. He's our priest. Verse 4, Psalm 110 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. God says to his son, Not only are you a king, but verse 4, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now there's an interesting promise given there in verse 4. He says, The entrance into this kingdom, the entrance of these people, these holy ones, having been purified, The entrance into the throne room of the Father is absolutely secure. Why? Because the Lord, get this, the Lord has sworn. And he will not change his mind, it says. Why won't he change his mind? 
Because the one who is upon that throne is not only our Savior, the Lamb, but he's also the King. And beyond that, he is our personal priest as well. He is the one who who has the right to stand and make intercession for us there before the throne of the Father. Why? Because of the sacrifice that he accomplished in his life. You see, he won the right and he rules with might. And now he intercedes for those of us who have no rights apart from him. 1 Timothy 2.5 says it this way, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. You see, he stands there as our priest, making intercession for us, where God has appointed him as a priest on our behalf. And you say, well, I don't understand the reference to the order of Melchizedek. Well, Melchizedek was a priest back in the book of Genesis that Abraham met and interacted with, who was not only a priest, but he was also a king. So Jesus could not be a priest in the order of the Aaronic Levitic line because they were very limited in their their scope. They were not part of the line of Judah that was the king. But in the person of Christ, you see his functions as being both priest and king are united into one, just like they were in the person of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25 explains the significance of this. I think we have just enough time to turn over there, so do that with me. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25 explains to us the significance of why it matters that Jesus is both our king and our priest. Hebrews 7 says, you see, the former priests, actually he quotes extensively from Psalm 110 in the verses just before this. Then he says in verse 23, you see, the former priests, on the one hand, they existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. And therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, because he is the eternal king, that means he is also the eternal priest. And the ramification of that is that from now until all of eternity, if you have been redeemed by him, you have the right to stand in God's presence without receiving his judgment. Because your priest is there perpetually, eternally, to make intercession for you implication of that, that we now have one priest forever who guarantees our place in the throne room because it's his throne room, is that God has sworn and he won't change his mind. And that caused David to rejoice as he looked forward to the coming of this priest king. And it should cause us to rejoice as we look forward to the return of that priest king. We look forward to that day and that, that is the third reason why we celebrate his coming. Not only is he our savior and our king, but he's also our priest. The fourth reason we can celebrate is given to us at the end of the psalm in verses 5 through 7. It's because Christ is victorious. Look at verses 5 through 7. He says, the Lord is at your right hand. 
And he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. And he will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. I love what's going on here. Because see, in verses 1 through 5, David is quoting a conversation between the father and son in heaven's throne room. But in verses 5 through 7, David's no longer quoting the words of the father to the son. Instead, he's actually surveying what is taking place after the king and priest has taken his place upon the throne. He's, he's reflecting upon what it all means. And as he concludes the psalm, as he reflects upon this conversation, he has witnessed that Christ is Savior, King, and Priest. He concludes, as he thinks about the future coming of the Lord, by wrapping it up with a statement of absolute victory. And as as he surveys the scene that is being revealed to him, he says, look, this King and and, and the priest, his his place is secure. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He says his victory is secure because this king will shatter all the other kings on the day of his wrath. His judgment is assured. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Then finally, verse 7, it's a beautiful statement. He says not only is this king priest's place secure as our Savior eternally, where God has promised and will not change his mind, but that king, in verse 7, That priest, our Savior, the one that David looked to, the one that we look to, he is pictured as being totally and completely satisfied. Look at verse 7. It says, this king, on that day, when he sits down upon David's throne to rule his people forever with everything wrong, having been made right, look what he does. He's going to drink from the brook by the wayside, and he will lift up his head. Now, I want to zero in, just as we close here, on that last statement. He will lift up his head, having drunk deeply to his satisfaction. Because so often at Christmas time, we think about a baby in a manger with his head laid down low. Or maybe we actually do go one step further and we think about his sacrifice with his head bowed and hung low. But in reality, if we stop there, you see, we're stopping too early because we're only looking at Christmas past. We have to look further to Christmas future like David did to the day when Christ looks up victorious as satisfied Savior, King, and Priest, having accomplished his work of redemption ruling and reigning for all eternity with us as his people clothed in righteousness, as this psalm says, offering ourselves freely as we proclaim, worthy, worthy, worthy are you, along with the rest of the host of heaven. And that, that's what we ought to be thinking about at Christmas time. When we ask ourselves the question, what should I be thinking about at Christmas time for my heart to be where it ought to be? You need to think about the rest of the story. You need to think about what happens when that great king returns. When that priest makes eternal intercession on your behalf. When that savior assumes his rightful place and rules for all eternity. That is the rest of the story. Because what began in a stable, it ends on a throne. 
And it is at that throne that we must bow ourselves, not only in eternity when we stand before him, but today as well. So don't forget that this Christmas season as you reflect upon the meaning of Christ's birth. Look to the end, because that's where the story actually concludes. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Our Father, we do thank you for the picture that you have presented to us. We don't, even, we, we don't just know what has taken place in the past, but because of the prophecies that you've given us, we're able to see what will take place someday in the future. And while we don't necessarily know what will take place between now and then, we know that that end is secure because you have promised that you will not change your mind. And so we look to the day when we are able to rejoice in your presence, standing before your righteous king, the descendant of David, worshiping him for all eternity, knowing that he has won the right for us to be there. He is the one who maintains the ability for us to stand there. And so in a great anticipation of that marvelous, wonderful day, may our worship of him today and even this Christmas season be fueled by our knowledge of who he is and what he has done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.